We're doing jumping jacks on a ledge, 1,800 feet above the valley. One person cannot stop a river from being dammed, but I figure I would try. I was pretty sure that the locals were sandbagging this. I mean, we're in this truck, we're driving down this dark At Patagonia, we are climbers and skiers. We are surfers and anglers. We're activists and dreamers. Stories are the fabric of our shared culture. Visit us at patagonia.com. Hardware put in, and uh, I had a fused ankle, fused subtalar joint, and my right—I'm sorry, my left ankle—they um, thought that they were going to have to fuse. This is climber to Tom Broxen. So I had broken bones on all four appendages. Um, my hip was pretty badly sprained, and my shoulders um, were pretty badly sprained too. And right now, he's probably got enough metal in him to set off an airport security machine. For years afterwards, I'd be sitting in a room. And all of a sudden, I would just get the sensation like I was accelerating across the room and I was going to slam into the wall. You know, it would just hit me really quick and I would, I would break out in a cold sweat and then it would pass. In 1991, Tom survived a 200-foot fall, a full rope length off the top of Yosemite Valley's Washington Column. To this day, Tom, his partner Pat, the rescuers who helped save his life, nobody is sure precisely what happened. There are guesses and conjectures, but that exact moment that changed Tom's life will always remain a mystery. Through the years, he's managed to let go of the ifs and the whys. It really made me profoundly feel there just is. There's no if. You know, there's no, if this would have been a little different or... One way or another, if if anything had been different, I'd be dead or I would have been fine. You know, this is what happened. It just happened just this way, and I was hurt pretty badly, but I wasn't dead. You know, if you look at the people who who, who survive or don't survive a medical event. I'm not going to say there's a whimsy to it, but sometimes people can be gravely injured or die or survive in the unlikely events. This is Kim Offhauser, an expert in search and rescue, a professor of park management, and one of the rescuers who helped save Tom's life. Kim has participated in hundreds of rescues over the years, treated thousands of patients. The details, well, they often fade. But this accident, Tom's accident, he remembers... The smallest thing could have either caused him to not fall at all or to have died. And that's what gave me some strong recollections about this particular rescue was that very thing, the, the oddity in which how the accident occurred. The physician who pioneered our modern emergency medicine system, a guy by the name of Dr. R. Adams Kelly, once said, there's a golden hour between life and death. It is in this golden hour, in these precarious, defining minutes between life and death, patients fight to live, rescuers put themselves in harm's way, decisions are made in an instant. Today, with the help of Yosemite's first responders, we bring you Tom Broxon's story of survival, recovery, and will. It turns out, an hour can last a lifetime. I'm Fitzgerald Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. First off, 
you may recognize Tom from Help Wanted, the story about climbers working on the Magic Kingdom's Matterhorn. The story begins in the early summer of 1991, about the same time that Tom was working at Disneyland. He was 25 years old. He'd just gotten married. And that fall, he was supposed to be headed for graduate school. So before life got hectic, he wanted to climb El Cap, Yosemite's greatest formation, in a day. So in the late spring, he left Los Angeles to do a training climb up Washington Column to prepare for this El Cap climb that would occur later in the summer. He was going to do a route called the Prow. Got on the Prow and climbed for a day. We had a single portal edge with us, slept on the single portal edge, and we're having a really good time. Tom and Pat cruised through the first two-thirds of the route before settling in for the evening. The morning of the, the next day, we dropped our food. And uh, I remember that pretty distinctly because we were getting, getting pretty hungry. We dropped our food bag. Pat led the first pitch of the morning. He stopped just shy of the standard belay station. And then Tom took over. And the last pitch on the prow is a little bit of aid climbing, like A1-ish kind of aid climbing. And then it goes into about a 5-7 slab climb that you can't really protect very well. And then there's a little 5-9 traverse back to the belay ledge right at the top of the pitch. Got up to the 5-9 section, um, put a piece in as I did the traverse, and then back cleaned it so the rope would run just a little bit cleaner. And got up onto the final belay ledge. When he arrived, though, that giant oak tree that climbers use as an anchor was just out of reach. He was at the end of his rope, so he couldn't move upward. It was pulling him back, but he was still three feet shy of the oak tree. And I remember sticking a couple of kind of bad pieces in kind of a crumbly little seam and not really, you know, not thinking that those were going to hold any kind of a fall or anything. And standing on the ledge and yelling down to Pat that I needed just a little bit more rope so I could reach up to that oak branch. And right after I yelled at him, I don't know if I stretching up to get the oak branch, I lost my balance or a little bit of rock crumbled or tension was on the rope. I really have no idea what happened, but I was falling. I had a very, very profound feeling that I was dead. Um, it was not a cell in my body that thought I was going to survive that fall because I knew how far run out I was. I was probably run out close to 100 feet. I felt amazingly calm, which was a really, really strange part of it. And I kind of rotated over and I was looking right out at Half Dome and I just remember thinking, I'm going to be dead tomorrow. Half Dome's going to be there tomorrow. And that's just the way it is. And it's okay which was really strange. I mean, you would think like your life would flash before your eyes or something else, but it was this kind of weird existential moment where I just knew I was dead and that's, that's what happened. But I, w I didn't die. And what happened was I actually hit a ledge at the bottom of that 5-7 slab, kind of a sloping ledge. That was about 75 feet. I went past Pat, and he said I didn't scream the whole way down. There was no sound at all. And when I, when I went past him, he must have been you know, at least 120, 130 feet below me. When the rope finally went taut, Tom had fallen 200 feet. The force of the fall pulled Pat upward so hard that the anchor bolts he was attached to bent upward, but held. Did, did you have a helmet on, even? I did not have a helmet on. To fall asleep 
Climbing in Yosemite can be a bizarre experience. Beer and ice cream are never more than a few hours away. It has the feel of, of a suburban wilderness. Yet when something goes wrong, Yosemite's walls become a very wild place. Cell phones have become a part of big wall climbers' haul bags, but in 1991, the cell phone it hadn't yet permeated the culture. So Pat began yelling almost immediately, hoping to catch the attention of someone down in the meadow. Maybe someone was watching their progress through binoculars. While it's impossible to say exactly when Tom's accident occurred, the best estimate might be about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Park rangers were alerted to the climber's predicament at around 5 o'clock. Immediately, they sprung into action. In your experience, you know, what's, what's the likelihood of somebody surviving a fall like this? I you know, we've seen a few others than uh right now, maybe a dozen over the years, you know, where people have taken real wingers and uh should have died. Um uh, but you can die on a ten footer, you know, if you land on your head. I a friend of mine died that way on Sentinel Rock breaking his neck. But you know, is that the norm? No, of course not. This is John Dill. John has been working with Yosemite Search and Rescue in one form or another for thirty eight years. He's one of the most experienced search and rescue professionals in the country, if not the world. He was there that day that Tom fell. Using a loudspeaker down in the meadow, Yosar personnel began asking yes or no questions that Pat could respond to by raising one or two arms. Tom was hurt badly. They needed to get someone up there instantly. At 6.20, Kim Offhauser and rescuer Michael Ray were dropped on top of the column via the park's helicopter. 30 minutes later, they were wrapping in to reach Tom and Pat. Almost immediately, they had the sense that this was more than just a broken leg. Here's Kim again. You know, we saw where it was very probable Tom launched from. And it seemed like he was, you know, a bit short of the traditional belay anchors. And that we found a piece or two of pro in a crack. Just sitting there. As if somebody put some pro in and then stood up and walked away. Um, And we repelled down to him. Immediately realized that things were not good. Things were, were serious. I remember kind of feeling the rock against my face and scraping sensation and hearing Pat yelling, yelling for help really, really loud. I came to a little bit and tried to right myself and realized very quickly that I was hurt pretty bad. Um, But the pain wasn't overwhelming. The pain was just kind of telling me that a lot of things were wrong, that I couldn't use my arms very well, that my legs weren't working um, properly. With Tom 50 or 60 feet below and out of sight from the belay stance, Pat began to haul Tom up, unsure if he would find his friend alive at the end of the rope. And I remember looking up and seeing Pat, and he was hauling. And then I remember having this realization that he was hauling me. Um, and he, he actually thought I was, had died in the, in, the, in the fall. So quick warning here. This is about to get graphic. I do remember looking down at my right arm, which turned out to be my worst injury, and trying to move it and just seeing a stump moving from the shoulder because um, the humerus had basically exploded. Um, and uh, the, 
was actually compound in three places. The part of one bone had gone through the radial nerve, and my elbow was about halfway up to my shoulder. Um, um, I also remember looking down and seeing the bone sticking out and just thinking how white it was and what a strange color that was to see see, see the bone. And, and um, uh, I couldn't see out of my right eye because my eyebrow had completely peeled down and was hanging over the eye. So I thought I had lost sight of my eye, but it just turned out to be the eyebrow had, had been peeled down. Um, and I had a pretty bad concussion. I had um, both of my naviculars were broken in my wrists, and my left heel was shattered, and my right talus had been um, broken pretty, pretty badly as well. His injuries were quite evident. He was, at times, partially lucid. He was partially aware of what's going on. He could answer some of our questions. And other times, he was less responsive to the questions. You know, it was very clear to me that we needed to fly the patient out rather than do a raising or a lowering. Um, it was getting later in the afternoon, so we were fighting light as well as fighting that, that notion of the golden hour for trauma patients. At 7 o'clock in the early summer, Kim had maybe an hour and a half of light to work with. If darkness arrived, Tom would likely have to hold on through the night. Immediately, they began to prepare Tom and dress his wounds. And they were able to determine that I had a severe head injury, that I had a lot of broken bones, that I had been, I was losing a, a lot of blood, and uh, they needed to get me off there really quickly. The incident commander phoned in for the Navy helicopter. Angel 2, a specialized rescue helicopter equipped with a winch, took off from a San Joaquin Naval Air Station. In the meantime, the park's helicopter, which didn't have a winch for raising or lowering, brought in the litter on a static line. So basically they get as close to directly above us as they can, and they begin to very, very slightly pitch the helicopter, causing this litter, this load, to kind of pitch back and forth like a pendulum until we can grab it. Kim, Michael, Pat, and Tom were all piled onto this ledge. It's barely large enough to stand on, so there's little room to maneuver. Um, when that litter came in, it dang near took me and one other person off that slope. It, and it was one of those things where, in one moment, I, you know, we were literally dodging this missile coming towards us, this, this litter. On the second pass, Kim was able to grab the litter. Tom dropped in and out of consciousness during this whole process. The sun was setting. Angel 2 would have to hurry. Anytime we have a helicopter involved, it's a very complicated device, and even if we're being very safe with it, things go wrong. They have to be very careful not to get all amped up with adrenaline, and they have to be able to lose a few, although they'll lose really big, and that's happened a number of times. A wind had gathered. Angel 2's pilot would have to hold the twin-engine Vietnam-era helicopter totally steady while a crew member lowered down to the rescuers at the belay. As you can imagine, this is a very delicate operation. It's not just that the wind might blow the aircraft over to the wall, um, but more that it 
the wind suddenly changing direction in the tail rotor can cause the aircraft to lose directional control. And pilots worry a lot about that. The crew chief lowered the medic down to Tom. But then the wind died down just as the sun set, as it often does in the valley as it shifts directions. And they short-hauled me off. Um, there was a guy standing on the gurney over me. And they began to winch me up into what was a Navy helicopter. And I remember it being very, very, very cold, uh, just because I'd lost so much blood. And with the, the wash from the helicopter prop, I could see the people crowded around me. I don't remember how many there were. I could see a, a lot of relief washing across their faces that they finally pulled this off and everybody was safe. And Tom's going to make it. He dropped back into darkness. John Dill remembers it like the sound of a fork falling into a whirling garbage disposal. Metal ripping apart metal, and then a loud bang. The helicopter shuddered. Tom jerked back to wake. And then I remember seeing everybody's face get really, really tense, and I knew that something was wrong. Um, and it turned out that uh, one of the helicopter's engines caught on fire. Angel 2 was in the midst of landing in the valley. The pilot cut the one engine and relied on the second to put the Huey down in the green meadows below. And so it must have just been a really high gravity day. A 200 foot fall, an emergency landing. Somehow by the thinnest margin, Tom had made it through the golden hour. These kind of tales, they almost always end right now. The rescue becomes legend. Maybe we close with a reflective comment, a parable about a lesson learned. We'd roll the credits and be done with Tom's tale. But in truth, at the close of that golden hour, the story begins. You know, that whole idea, Nietzsche's the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, that, that seemed like a bunch of crock too you know <laughs> what doesn't kill you doesn't kill you you're just there you, you survive tom was moved to modesto he sat in the icu for a week the surgeons went in four times to work on his arm they fused joints they placed screws and pins pat friends and family were there to provide support but the doctor's prognosis provided little hope what i was told by the doctors over and over again is i would get 20 percent range of motion back maximum in my right I was told I'd walk with a cane for the rest of my life, and I was given permanent 100% disability for the rest of my life. So it was like Social Security for the rest of my life. During his extended hospital stay, there was more than enough time to rehash what had gone wrong, to think through the details, to wish it hadn't happened. Relatives and friends looked for meaning in Tom's fall, saying things like, God must be telling you something, or that God must be expecting great things of you to look out for you like that. It doesn't, none of that matters, you know? I mean, it just happened. One little tiny thing different and I'd have been dead. You know, maybe if I would have been wearing a helmet, it would have put a little more torque on my head and I would have broke my neck. Then maybe it was just one little crystal of rock that broke or something that caused me to fall. If that wouldn't have happened, we would have walked off and I'd have forgotten about this climb by now. It would have just been, you know, another climb that I barely even remember. 
As far as the doctors were concerned, there was a good chance that Tom was never going to be able to move beyond these injuries. Um, I spent a couple weeks in the hospital and then four months in a wheelchair and uh, was determined that one way or another I was going to prove somebody wrong. Tom had a choice. He saw that very clearly. He could let this accident change his life, allow it to be more significant than he felt it was, or he could move past it. And for me, I think that was really important simply because otherwise the accident would have been this seminal event in my life. You know, it would have been really the defining moment in my life. And I was really determined to not have it be that. So Tom started setting goals. You know, you know, I think I had a lot of, of drive to really push myself really, really hard, but the accident really, really intensified it. I was living in an apartment complex in L.A. at the time, and I would go out as soon as I was able to get myself into my wheelchair, and I would wheel myself out to the pool, which would take me, you know, like 30 minutes to get out to the pool, and then I would just kind of flop over into the pool. And I remember the small children would kind of scatter because this really strange man with these atrophied limbs was flopping around in the pool. And, you know, it would take like five minutes before I was totally exhausted. I did. I went to the first day of grad school. I couldn't walk very well yet, but I was determined to not go in a wheelchair. And so what I did was I strapped my cane onto a beach cruiser that we had and I rode the three or four blocks over to Cal State Fullerton and then right to the base of the building, got on the elevator, went up, and, and uh, you know, that was kind of my goal every day was to make it to class. Um, and so for me, it was not only really important to get physically stronger, but it was to go out and get back on the horse and go climbing. Almost two years to the day after the accident, I climbed the nose. Um, not in a day. It took, it took four days, and it was a struggle. Tom didn't stop there. Next year, he ticked off another El Cap route, and then another and another. He actually went on to climb harder than he had before the accident. He worked his way through hard wall climbs and ticked 513 sport routes. The pain never really left. I mean, it was, it was a huge struggle. I mean, it was just a really painful, emotional process. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I could do it again. A few years out, when I was climbing harder than I had before the climb and life was going pretty well, um, it was just a story to be told around the campfire for it became just, just part of life. But, you know, there were, there were years where if I could undo one thing in my life, that would have been it. You know, frankly, since then, there's other things I would undo in my life. But, but you know, at that point, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a big thing. It was mostly negative, and it was a lot of really hard work to try, to try to get past it. So here's this moment, and you've tried so hard to not have it become you, to not let it define you. Do you think that maybe, that, that in this process to recover, do you think maybe it did come to define you? Well, you know, looking back on it, 16 years, 17 years, something like that, 
that it is a defining moment in my life. It really affected me in a lot of ways. Um, but at the, at the time, I was just so focused on recovering from it and just in, in such a survival mode for a couple of years after that. Um, you know, that's, that's what I was thinking. But it didn't really make any sense. It didn't make any sense that you know, this was some divine retribution or lesson or any other thing. It's just it's life. Sometimes life is rough. Tom Broxson teaches at Pierce Community College outside of Tacoma, Washington. He still climbs, is a monster on a road bike, and will be skiing just as soon as he recovers from his latest knee surgery. This summer, he and his wife Kelly are expected to have their first child. Despite sharing this powerful moment, Tom and Pat drifted apart through the years. Tom has tried to track him down, but to no avail. A big thanks to Kim Offhauser of West Valley College and John Dill of Yosemite National Park. They were able to fill in many of the details of the accident that Tom has no way of remembering. Their expertise was greatly appreciated. And you'll smile receipts for common deeds A common crutch to lift you Music today by OutCircuit, Sunlux, Southerly, Dengue Fever, Ken Christensen, and Seattle singer and picker Bradley Carter. Bradley is also a listener, and you can expect to hear more from him in coming episodes. If you have questions about music, want links, or to stream some of the music used in today's show, please visit our site at www.dirtbagdiaries.com. We've been getting so many wonderful emails from listeners filled with input and stories. Please keep it up. We love your feedback, and many of our stories have come via listeners. Also, if one of our shows brings up a memory, brings up a story, I'd really encourage you to post it on our site in a comment form so that everybody can see it. Don't be shy. People will dig it. Our email is dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. Today's show was made possible by Patagonia, warmer weather is on the way the new spring line is out check them out at patagonia.com they've got some sweet stuff next time it was like a throne and then it was like as if it were my wheelchair but it's not it's a mountain two brothers one a professional climber the other an artist embark on a lifelong goal and help realize each other's dreams i'm fitzko hall and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Crap the syllabus, the only step you never will perfect. It takes one more day to vanish yourself, so hit the bar and call the day. You go do, 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 do,